This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we get an update on a major budget increase for Colorado schools in the coming year. Plus, we hear why the slow return to in-person life isn't so easy for everyone. COVID was just uh, almost a lot of nothingness, really. And we learn about the birds migrating over Colorado as the peak of their migration season comes to an end. We'll have those stories and more just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. Governor Jared Polis signed a $34 billion state budget Monday that largely restores dramatic cuts lawmakers made last year due to the coronavirus pandemic. Polis says the spending plan boosts the state's reserve fund to the highest level since the 1980s. And state lawmakers are still working to pass parts of an $800 million stimulus package that includes more relief for small businesses. After deep cuts to Colorado education during the pandemic, the new budget fully restores its funding, increasing by 14 percent from last year, or six hundred million dollars, according to Governor Polis. Here to walk us through the new budget and where the money will be going in education is Erica Meltzer, Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat Colorado. Erica, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's get into the new budget in just a second. But first, how was the education system impacted by budget cuts? So last year when the legislature was setting the budget, it was right in the midst of the stay-at-home order Almost all businesses were closed and no one really knew what the future was going to bring. The economic forecast was extremely dire and lawmakers set about trying to fill this $3 billion hole in the budget. And so that meant uh, some really significant cuts to higher ed and K-12. And now some of those cuts were, were backfilled by federal relief money. Governor Jared Polis actually took the state's allotment of CARES money and shared that with higher ed institutions and K-12 schools. So they had even more assistance than schools in other states did. But that money did have some restrictions on what you could use it for. And so it was a big help to districts, but it wasn't quite the same as, as just having the funding that they would have had in previous years. And so now what we see in this budget is that the economic situation turned out to be not nearly as dire as was anticipated. And so they were able this year to restore a lot of that money. Let's talk about where some of that money is going. We'll start with higher ed. How will colleges and universities be impacted? So first, Colorado's uh, public colleges and universities got back almost all of the money that, that had been cut the year before. And so that just really shores up their operating budgets. And for the most part, that's going to help them limit tuition increases, which of course have a big impact on families. The University of Northern Colorado is an exception. They're allowed to have a 7% tuition increase that I think speaks to some financial situations that they were having that even predate the pandemic. The other thing they're doing is we saw a lot of students from low-income backgrounds, from first-generation college-going backgrounds, either take a break from school or put off their college enrollment because of the economic situation that their families were in. And the state is making a lot of money available for recruitment and retention of these students to kind of help them pick up their goals and stay on track. And so there's there's money for students. And there's also a new position that they've created in the budget called a chief equity officer that's supposed to work on sort of big picture. How can Colorado do a better job helping more students get across the finish line? Well, on that note, something that comes to mind is mental health and how many students kind of suffer, especially during the pandemic with issues related to mental health. Is there funding to work on that? Yeah, absolutely. That's something that educators have raised as a huge concern. Students and teachers have raised as a huge concern. And we saw 
lawmakers pick that up and include money in the budget for counselors, for social workers in schools, for bullying prevention, suicide prevention. This is sort of outside the budget process, but there's legislation that would help pay for counseling for students. And this is something, it it was a big need before the pandemic. And I think it's just reached such a point that people feel like they can't ignore it anymore. And so we are seeing some more resources go into that. Well, let's go down to the K through 12 level. Um, What can you tell us about budget spending here? Well, again, there was a really big cut last year and that money is restored this year. We also are seeing some additional money be put aside. Well, there's, there's a couple things that are getting sort of an extra lift this year. One is that there's extra money set aside for students who are deemed at risk. And that means students who come from low-income families or students who are in the early stages of learning English. These are generally students from some of the communities that have been really hit hardest by the pandemic. And there's an awareness that they're going to be coming into school next year with with some additional needs, and that's going to cost money to meet those. And so there's an extra $77 million on top of the base education budget specifically to help those students. Well, Erica, before we let you go, the outlook seems good with this budget, but are there any big shortcomings as you see? I think most people that I've talked to are pretty happy with this budget as an annual allocation. But what it doesn't do is solve some of the big structural problems in school finance in Colorado. Our state constitution requires education funding to increase every year by population plus inflation, but the state can't afford to do that with the current amount of revenue that it has and still do the other things it needs to do. So since the Great Recession, lawmakers have held back more than $10 billion that would have otherwise gone to schools. This is called the budget stabilization factor. And in this year's budget, we still have that budget stabilization factor. It's $572 million. There are also sort of big picture questions about how Colorado distributes money to schools that it doesn't send the most money to the students with the most need. And there's also problems with how the cost is shared among the state and school districts and whether school districts are carrying their own weight in an equitable way. And so all of those problems are, are just kind of kicked down the road. These have been conversations for many years, and, and it looks like we're going to keep having them. Erica Melter is Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat Colorado. You can find a link to their breakdown on this at our website, KUNC.org. Erica, thanks as always for joining us. Thanks for having me. For many Coloradans, the pandemic has led to feelings of stress, isolation, and anxiety. But that doesn't mean the slow return to living life in person is easy. In fact, there's a lot of social unease that can come with it, especially with going back to school. KUNC's mental health reporter Lee Patterson has more. The walls of Max Knoll's bedroom are wood paneled. His bookshelf holds some trinkets and gaming stuff. His desk is clean, except for a sketchbook. It's a place Max has spent a lot of time in during the past year. Every day you would just get out of bed and go to school. And the school wasn't at school. It was a computer at your desk, like five feet from your bed. As a senior at Fossil Ridge High School in Fort Collins, he did remote school for a few months and then a full semester of hybrid learning. COVID was just uh, almost a lot of nothingness, really. At one point, Max hadn't left his house in a month. He would stay in bed all weekend. He was depressed. Family doctors, clinicians, and hospitals have all been seeing more kids coming in for depression and anxiety, as well as for other issues like sleep problems, emotional meltdowns, and self-harm. So for teenagers, 
the level of severity has, has become really astonishing to me as somebody that's been doing this work for almost 20 years. That's Dr. Kathy Sigda, a psychologist with Mountain Crest Outpatient Clinic in Fort Collins. Kids with anxiety are now afraid to leave the house. And now the slow return to in-person life is full of new challenges. What was the first day back like for you? It, it was really weird. Max and his classmates went back to school full-time in mid-March. This recent video shows the busy cafeteria with plexiglass barriers dividing up circular tables, and another showing lots of kids in a hallway, all walking in the same direction during a passing period. We're all wearing masks, but there, there is no social distance, distancing when there's that many people. Classes in the Greeley-Evans School District have been mostly in person since January. Kristen Dalton has seen students of all ages react to in-person school in a range of ways. I am the social-emotional learning facilitator for District 6. For many, returning to the classroom has been a really good thing. But Dalton has also noticed some high schoolers glued to their phones, for example. Where they're not directly engaging with people, um, and that's challenging. We're not seeing that social interaction. Others, she says, are acting kind of immature. High school students, juniors and seniors running around, kind of poking each other and um, things we would typically see in middle school because they're not sure how to create a new interaction. Kim Collins is the chief clinical officer at North Range Behavioral Health in Greeley. In a year where we haven't really used our social skills, she says we've instead developed a heightened sense of our environment, proximity to others, germs on surfaces, and ventilation systems. There's almost like a deprogramming that we need to do with ourselves and, and give extra space and extra conversation for the kids to go through that deprogramming also. Getting comfortable being around people again will likely take some time. But experts are worried about lasting mental health impacts on young people like young kids who missed out on the brain development that happens during the school year, or those who experience significant stress and trauma, such as losing a loved one to COVID and uncertainty about the future. It's, it's been such a, a surreal thing, like a collective fever dream. E even if um, someone hasn't been diagnosed with depression due to like staying inside all day or something, you're still going to remember how hard COVID was. Max Knoll has found ways to cope during the pandemic. He connected with others playing online video games, and he started going for walks around his neighborhood with his mom. This weekend, he'll graduate from Fossil Ridge High School. I have my robe, uh, my cap and gown already, and I, I can't see graduating yet. It, it almost feels undeserved because, like, I can't even remember most of the past year. Max is hoping to go to art school and study illustration. Right now, he's working on his portfolio, looking into scholarships, and is thinking about taking a gap year, but is unsure what travel will look like. Lee Patterson, KUNC. As many businesses start to loosen mask-wearing policies, one of Northern Colorado's largest school districts is extending its policy for teachers and students. Greeley-Evans District 6 says it will require masks in the classroom for the remainder of the school year and for summer school. Teresa Myers is the district's spokeswoman. Younger kids are still getting sick, and they are exposing their classmates and their 
the staff at our schools. So we just are, you know, erring on the sign of caution and really just trying to do what we can to keep our students and staff healthy. Poudre School District in Fort Collins and Thompson School District in Loveland are also requiring masks in the classroom through the remainder of the school year. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. The COVID-19 pandemic delayed weddings, concerts, and plenty of other life events throughout 2020. But for many, it also delayed justice. Depending on where you were, you could have been waiting days or months for your day in court. Madeline Beck looked into courtroom delays in the Mountain West over the pandemic and which states did better than others. Christopher Gauntlet was incarcerated at the Washoe County Sheriff's Office in Nevada for 525 days waiting for his trial. Not right, but nothing I could do about it, so I had to stay in there. It, it, it hurts, you know. Delays came from pandemic lockdowns, but also when a witness got COVID-19. Gauntlet's court date got pushed back again and again. It was kind of like miserable, you know. At the same time, Gauntlet says COVID-19 was all around him. They actually moved me out of a cell that was infected and into another cell that was infected. He said people tried to get him to take a plea deal, but he refused. He wanted to fight his charges, which included domestic battery and child abuse or neglect, among others. After more than a year behind bars awaiting trial, he was found not guilty on all counts. I stuck to my faith and stuck to everything and just waited it out and went to trial. But even after release, Gauntlet's life didn't go back to normal. He no longer had a job or a home in Nevada anymore. Unfortunately, his case likely isn't unique. I think there's probably a Chris Gauntlet in every jurisdiction throughout the country right now. That's John Arascata, the Washoe County Public Defender in Reno, Nevada. He says the pandemic has been a massive strain on the court system. His jurisdiction is seeing significantly more trials this year as they try to make up for lost time in 2020. But Arascata believes courts did work hard last year to keep things moving. He was on a committee looking into safely resuming jury trials. And we actually were able to have three jury trials during the month of October of 2020. And then things shut down again there until April. But that wasn't necessarily the case across the region. Trial delays varied depending on your state, county, or even courtroom. Some for days or weeks, others for months. That meant some areas have a long court backlog and others don't. In Idaho, state officials say the number of pending criminal cases increased by 22% from January 2020 to January 2021. There's a backlog in parts of New Mexico, too. And in Colorado, the judiciary reported between four and five times the number of criminal jury trials scheduled this year than usual. Montana doesn't even know what its backlog looks like. There isn't really an agreed-upon way to measure that. That's Brian Smith, a public defender administrator there. Which has been frustrating. But not having objective, agreed-upon backlog data makes it hard to ask for resources, like more judges or staff. I don't have a good solution. The problem, though, is there. And we need resources. And my fear is, because we can't measure it, we're not going to allocate the resources. But one state in the Mountain West is different from the rest. Wyoming doesn't seem to have much of a court backlog at all. I think we're doing pretty well. Wyoming Supreme Court Chief Justice Michael Davis points to a few reasons for that. For one, local court flexibility. Unlike other courts in our region, Wyoming was able to keep court processes moving, even though they couldn't hold trials for a few months. And then there's Wyoming's size. 
they had 3,700 judges in Texas, and we've got 53 from the circuit court through the Supreme Court. So your ability to communicate and manage things is much more immediate and uh, personal and direct. Wyoming was also lucky. When the pandemic hit, the state had just about finished a massive project getting video systems and software up and running in courtrooms, and that made it possible to do more work remotely. Of course, that doesn't guarantee a backlog-free Wyoming going forward. The judiciary there is facing budget cuts as the state grapples with an economic crisis. Big cuts would mean fewer judges and staff, and that could eventually mean a longer wait for your day in court. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Natalie Beck. KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You can find more stories at KUNC.org. We are nearing the tail end of peak bird migration here in Colorado. It typically starts at the beginning of May each year and brings millions of birds through the skies across our state. Experts are predicting that tonight alone, more than 2.5 million migratory birds will fly over Colorado. And though we're close to the end of the peak migration, you haven't missed the chance to see some cool birds on their way up north. And experts also say you still have time to do your part in helping them make that journey safely. Joining us for more on these migratory birds and their journey through our region is Kyle Horton. Kyle is an assistant professor in the Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Conservation Biology at Colorado State University. He is also the principal researcher at CSU's Aero Ecolab, which studies bird, bat, and insect migration. Kyle, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for having me, Henry. I appreciate it. So I mentioned that we are toward the tail end of peak migration. What does that really mean in Colorado, and what are some good starter migration facts? Usually when we think about uh, birds coming through the Colorado area, we often start to see a a big uptick in the birds coming through around the beginning of May. And then usually peak migration will last anywhere from about two to three weeks after that point. So we're, we're nearing the tail end of really the peak periods, but even for the next couple of weeks going through May, we're going to see volumes and volumes of migratory birds. Some birds haven't even passed through Colorado yet, so they're still coming through uh, and things are going to start uh, looking a lot more colorful in, in the backyards around Colorado as well, where we start to get you know, some of these, these long distance migrants that are traveling hundreds, if not thousands of kilometers to make it here. You know, colorful birds like orioles and warblers, tanagers are going to start showing up in our backyards at our bird feeders and maybe our, our nearest uh, birding hotspot that we like to go visit. You know, we're going to see, you know, sometimes hundreds of species coming through the state during these peak periods. Some are going to settle in and breed in Colorado. Some are just going to keep passing through, heading even further north, maybe as far north as Alaska. And the vast majority of these birds are going to be moving at night. I'm wondering if there's anything in particular about the airspace above Colorado or really the Rocky Mountain region that you think is important for us to know about birds and why they migrate here. This area is very unique in terms of bird migration. So we have a, a wide diversity of habitat types. On the, the east, we have you know grasslands. To the west, we have pretty high elevation mountain ranges. A lot of birds are going to be following these large geographic features too. So running north and south along mountain ranges, thinking about the front range of Colorado, uh, might be a collecting point for a lot of birds as they they pass north in the spring. But also just that diversity of habitats is going to also reflect a diversity of birds. So, you know, some birds that might be found 
uh, in the mountainous regions are not going to be found, for instance, out in the grasslands of Colorado and vice versa. For that reason, it makes it a really exciting area to watch migratory birds, both from the diversity standpoint, the topography that we have. That's a really exciting point as, as a bird watcher, but also as a researcher. And then in terms of the air spaces, I don't know if there's anything necessarily unique about the air spaces, but I always find it quite fascinating that, like, like I said, you can go out into the grasslands and hear birds flying over at night. And you can also, you know, drive up to 11, 12,000 feet uh, in elevation and also hear migratory birds flying over those air spaces. Basically, wherever you're at in Colorado, the likelihood of finding a migratory bird during peak migration period like now is quite high. I want to talk about the impact that humans have on these migrating birds, light pollution especially. And there's been these big lights out initiatives to reduce the amount of unnecessary outdoor light that we've got in our municipalities really across North America and the world. Can you describe the harms that light pollution brings to migratory birds and uh, from your perspective as a researcher, the importance of turning lights out during peak migration? When we think about migratory birds, right, we're describing birds passing under the cover of darkness. And I think when we, we describe that, we think of the perfect scenario, right? A starry night and these birds are moving through a calm, windless night and they're able to successfully you know, migrate north or south. Uh, the reality is, is that those dark nighttime skies are, are starting to become fewer and fewer um, as we start to populate the airspace with light pollution. And these birds have evolved for hundreds of thousands of years to rely on certain signals to, to navigate. So they might cue in on the stars at night to know which direction to fly. You know, light pollution is fairly new and novel. It's only been around for, you know, 100, maybe 200 years in some areas. And as it turns out, light pollution starts to disorient migratory birds. We've known about this for a while, too, when we think about lighthouses shining the way for sailors out in the ocean or along the Great Lakes. What we actually saw during some of these periods that overlap with migratory birds is that the birds would be attracted to these lighthouses and they would circle incessantly calling, sometimes colliding with the tower, going through their energy stores, which are so vital for their success and having to land on the ground completely you know, famished, devoid of their energy. And sometimes they're going to start getting predated by maybe galls along the coast um, or just not having enough energy to even, you know, continue that migration, ultimately fatally perishing. And this is now uh, wide, uh, is, a, is a large scale problem with lights on communication towers, lights on skyscrapers, even lights on our backyard porch. Um, these lights seem to attract the birds and they sometimes attract these birds, increasing the risk of collisions with those structures or just attracting them to suboptimal areas. So you imagine a, a small songbird um, that might require a forested area to feed on insects during the day now being pulled into an urban park, for instance, where it might not be able to find enough insects to feed on. Its risk of colliding with a building is now elevated. Its risk of maybe being predated by a feral cat or a house cat is now elevated. So these lights have a, a large scale impact on these migratory birds, and it ultimately is leading to um, you know, some impact and declines in migratory bird populations. 
And as a researcher, this is something that I try to un understand both where and when the greatest threats to these migratory birds are in terms of light pollution and what tools we can bring um, to bear to help migratory birds of saying, this is going to be a big night of migration. If you could turn your lights out in this very specific area for this night, this could help migratory birds successfully pass north or south. Now, when it comes to turning off lights to help birds, is it kind of an all or nothing sort of deal? Does it matter if I turn off my porch light if there's still a ton of light pollution coming from my block or, or from my town in general? Basically, anything helps. So turning off your light on your backyard porch can help. It might not you know, reduce a, a fatal collision at a skyscraper, but it might reduce uh, attraction to maybe you know, your backyard at night or something along those lines. So it's, it's not really an all or nothing strategy. Uh, every effort that can go towards helping reduce light pollution is a net benefit. You know, this problem is sometimes as simple as turning off the switch, flipping off the light for the night or a few nights or maybe the season. So I would say any effort um, to reduce light pollution is a net benefit for migratory birds. Kyle Horton is the principal researcher at Colorado State University's Aero Eco Lab. He is also an assistant professor in the Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Conservation Biology at CSU. Kyle, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks so much, Henry. I appreciate it. That's our show for today. I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff on the show includes Tess Novotny, Alan Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. And thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.